You are listening to the Choose Your Struggle Podcast, a member of the Shameless Podcast Network. A quick shout out to my Patreon supporters. I am so grateful for your support and your love. Y'all have been with me since almost the beginning, and so much of this podcast could not be done without you. Almost to a person, they've all told me that they didn't join for the perks, although there are some pretty fantastic perks, but they've all joined just to support the show, and it really means so much to me. Now, if you join, you are going to get some stuff in return. You'll get sneak peeks, extra content, and the chance to interact with me on a second level. It's really a great way to show support if you love this show. So go ahead and check it out today. Go to patreon.com slash choose your struggle. The lowest tier is only $3.40 a month. And there's multiple tiers after that. There's something for everybody. So truly, I truly mean this. Thank you to all of my Patreon supporters. And if you've been waiting to sign up, well, now's a great time. So head on over to Patreon and show a little bit of love. Choose your struggle. Spread love. Choose your struggle. Hello and welcome to a special Monday Motivation episode of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. As you are hearing this, I am in Nashville for a podcast conference uh, called Podcast Movement. Very excited to be here. Uh, I'm recording this a week early, but I'm sure I'm excited to be there. So I'm going to stick with that. Excited to be here. What you're hearing today is a very long and interesting, I think, conversation with my sister-in-law, Eliza Gelman. Uh, She is my wife, Lauren's stepsister, and she is the host of a podcast called Hotter Than Health. It is one that I subscribe to. Uh, She has a really amazing following in the health community. We had been talking for literally over a year uh, since early in this, uh, the the tenure of this show, uh, about how we were going to find a way to do some crossover work. And we finally made it happen. So uh, this conversation was released on her show. uh, When this comes out, it'll be about two weeks ago, week and a half. And um, it, it's something that I recommend you check out on her platform. If you like what you hear from her, please go subscribe. And uh, one thing that I will say for, for Eliza that, that is awesome is that, like me, she really appreciates and enjoys when people reach out. So um, if, if you do go subscribe, follow her on Instagram. She has a, a great following on Instagram. Both her personal and the show uh, have, have great profiles. But, but go follow her and then tell her, hey, I heard you on Choose your struggle uh really love the conversation or hey i'm gonna follow you now you know whatever whatever you want to say to her but um like me she loves that uh and you all know how much i appreciate when people reach out it happens all the time uh on on all sorts of platforms um as i'm recording this i just got a, a message on linkedin from a guy who wants me to be part of a new project he's working on so you know these are the things i love please keep reaching out uh and and enjoy this conversation with eliza gelman of the hotter than health podcast i don't know how you wanted to start uh but i think it'd be really funny to open this by telling the story the first time i met you (laughs) is that a story that you're okay with your listeners hearing (laughs) on a daily basis my listeners either hear like cock and balls or they hear about like butt sex or they hear about like there's just so much. Well, this is less about the topic and more about you 
participating in pulling a very funny prank. I don't oh. know if you were trying to, you know, come off as professional with on your show. <laughs> oh, I mean, I have so many layers to me. Like, <laughs> yes, let's tell. Do that you story. do you remember what your sign what your sign said? My sign said. Um, All right, so while you're thinking, here's the story to the listeners. So uh, for those who don't know, uh, we are related. This is my sister-in-law that that I'm talking to right now. Uh, And I'll have you introduce yourself for my listeners, and I'll do the same for yours in a second. But uh, so so the first time, Lauren and I had only been dating for maybe three months, and I came to Charlotte to visit, uh, to meet her dad. And that is a story for another day, uh, the, the, the awfulness that happened to me. It, it's all good. We're great now. But I embarrassed the shit out of myself the first time I met Rick, uh, Lauren, my, my father-in-law. But uh, I get off the plane with Lauren, and uh, she's like, I need you to wait up here for a second. And for anyone who hasn't been to Charlotte, very weirdly, throughout the airport, there are multiple uh, rocking chairs just sitting in corners. And she was like, wait on this rocking chair. And I was like, I don't know what the hell is happening. So I'm sitting there waiting. And she finally says, all right, you can come down to baggage claim now. And I get on the escalator to come down to baggage claim. And Rick, my, my now father-in-law, uh, my, bro- my brother-in-law, Holden, uh, you and a friend of yours are waiting at the bottom of the escalator with signs oh, right. and balloons. And, and it was a whole thing. And all of these signs said things like, congratulations on getting out of jail. Uh, congratulations, the kid's not yours. All of these amazing and awkward as hell signs and and people are staring i mean it's a whole spectacle and that is the first time that i met you i think i it it's bringing up some memories and i think mine said jay congratulations on shooting blanks or something (laughs) (laughs) so so this was my welcome to the more uh uh family as a whole uh and that included lauren's dad and brother and and you liza so uh that was it was it was it was something that was that was something uh (laughs) so so that was five years ago now lauren and i have been married for two and a half and we were we were dating for a couple years before that so yeah Yeah. about a little over yeah going on six years which is nuts that's Uh, wild that time has flown also um apologies in advance my dog wears tap shoes so you can just hear all of that uh, very impressive from your dog. But but so this is kind of going to be one of the things we talk about here today, obviously. But another person I met on that trip is your incredible mother, uh, who is no longer with us. So before we really get into all of that, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and then for your, for my listeners, and I'll do the same for yours afterwards. For sure. Um, but I'm just excited to do this. Thanks for setting aside the time. But also, I, I had been trying to figure out how we could make this work. I think that uh, just for a bit of context and a bit of background, our families both have really developed themselves and carried themselves professionally in the communication arena. Um, My mom and my grandfather, her father, had created a public speaking institute and traveled all throughout the world training professionals on how to carry themselves professionally and... (laughs) Hence the beginning of the story, me being a complete professional. It's clearly genetic on my father's side. But um, either way, yeah, I think it's really important that we 
continue to carry that along and I'm glad we could do it together. Um, but my name's Eliza Gelman and I, I live in Charleston. I am a nutritionist in the local Charleston area and I have a podcast hotter than health. It is going on four years, which is exciting. And, and recently we've been integrating as Jay would say it more storytelling and just a more compelling way to share knowledge and information. I feel like so uh, we are just flooded right now with information on social media, um, political jargon. There's, you know, people are choosing one side or the other for so many different things when nutrition and health and wellness is such an individual, um, it's such an individual conversation. And that's why I, I like looking at it from a holistic perspective and why I've been getting so much more into conversations about mental health, because it, everything is affected by mental health. Like there's no point in having a conversation about your constipation or regularity or your nutrition, any kind of constitution that has to do with your physical wellness without talking about your mental wellness. Um, but one of the reasons when I did start the podcast was because of my mom is because I was like, how can I how can I learn? How can I do what I love to do? But also what is, what's a way to carry on the legacy that feels natural to me. And here we are four years later. Um, and, and we're talking about it. Yeah. When, when I started this show, there were really only a couple of people that I knew firsthand that, that had a, a podcast and you were one of them. And I think that you, you know, uh, podcast. This is something we talked about over the weekend at this conference. I was just at. There was an entire session on uh, growing. Uh, growing is the wrong word. Maturing and and sort of uh, how to uh, pivot in your show without, but to to make it better, right? Not to completely redo stuff, uh, but to 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 continue uh, evolving your show so that it doesn't get stale. And I think that yours is such a great example of that uh, because adding. You know, perfect example is that three months into my show, I had someone reach out to me and say, not even three months, a couple months in, and say, you are not doing your, the topics of mental health and substance misuse and recovery enough service without talking about drug use and drug policy. And I was like, you're totally right. Uh, and, and sort of just as you said about yours, it caused me to revisit it and start to pivot it and, and evolve in a way uh, that has really shown not only in its own growth, but in people's responses to it, uh, it made it a much fuller show. And I think that by adding storytelling and, as you said, taking a more uh, a bigger picture look at, at health for yours, it's done something very similar. Absolutely. And the, the great thing about it is that there's not one thing in this world that we can't find a connection to something else. There's no way for us to run out of things to talk about or everyone thinks you have to find your niche which i agree with you have to find your niche initially or niche initially so that you can really figure out what you're best at talking about like if you try and you know i heard this quote the other day i loved it don't try and boil the ocean and you just go one pot at a time i was like that's that's, that's fucking great but it's you think if you go into it thinking, yeah, I want to have a podcast about, you know, mental health, lifestyle, nutrition, exercise, whatever, or you name all of these different things and it's overwhelming. Um, you want to try and be a professional or an expert in one area. And that way you have the credibility and the, honestly, the mental bandwidth to talk about multiple things at once. It's, it, it's a lot. 
it's a lot to try and figure out, you know, I was so, I had on um, one of my good friends the other week, um, Fred Rico, and we talked about his coming out story. It was pride month and we talked about him coming out and all of the things that he went through and HIV and all these things. And honestly, it almost, it, it took me aback because I was so, I was almost a little bit nervous to go into that conversation because I felt so ignorant, but then I realized I can't just let these fears of not opening up my mind to different things and, and hearing about these different stories, because how else am I going to grow? Like how, this is how you grow. This is how you have conversations and you learn and you, you find different perspectives. And then that's what makes the world big, you know? Yeah. I've, I've had that experience myself. I, uh, a, a buddy of mine, a guy that I was on his show and we've become podcast friends, uh, introduced me to this uh, former general who went was fired for having a mental illness, and I was like, "That sounds like a great story." But honestly, I there are very few topics I can't talk about. The military is one of them. I just have nothing. I have no context, and I like sat on his story for a while. And finally, this guy was like, uh, "You need to just reach out to him." I mean, he has a great story. You guys can obviously chat. And I realized it was just you know me being afraid. That was the reason I wasn't reaching out because I like to at least be able to have the conversation from a place of knowledge when I'm have somebody on my show. And, mm-hmm. and, and like I said, the military is just so foreign to me that, that I, it's hard for me to, to do that. Uh, but before we get farther in for, for your listeners, cause this is dropping on multiple platforms. That's uh, true. It's true. Yeah. Let's on, hear, for hear your for story. the hotter yeah. than health people. Uh, my name is Jay Schiffman. I'm the host of choose your struggle. Uh, the founder of choose your struggle, the, the, the company, uh, I'm a guy in long-term recovery in my uh, platform, which includes a couple of live events uh, and the, the podcast, Choose Your Struggle, a book coming out next year, all focuses on the issues of mental health, substance misuse and recovery and drug use and policy. Uh, and uh, as, as we said before, obviously, you and I know each other. We go way back, but there is overlap there. And I think that, um, you know, since we're both taking more broad looks and, and, and I love your point about uh, you know, you do have to figure out your niche early on, uh, but then you have to grow with it, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I, earlier today, I was on a site called podcastguest.com. Listeners, if you are ever looking to be interviewed on podcasts, I think it's the best. Uh, set up a, pla- a, a portfolio on there and, and people reach out and ask you to be interviewed. Um, I was looking at some of the shows that were looking for guests and one of them, the name was like, you know, Coffee with Ben or something like that and the description was like hard to pin down we talk about a lot of things and I didn't pitch myself because I was like why like all these other shows are we're looking for this we're looking for that we're looking for this and it's like I know that I can fit into that I don't know that I want to be on a show where the guy is just like I don't know we'll chat about something that's not interesting to me that's not that's not something I'm looking to do yeah, I think unless unless you're like de- you're a developed character on a show, then then people like might know your shtick and they might have something at least that they think that you would think is funny. Like that's really really tough, and I hope that that guy gets some good feedback soon, <laughs> or maybe he has great feedback and that's working for him. But I think that also it, it it does have to do with like okay, how do I gauge success? Am I thinking I'm successful just because I really enjoy this? If so, great, keep doing what you're doing. But if you have a goal of like reaching a larger audience. And, and helping them becoming a resource, that's another thing. And so we talked about this the other day. We mentioned I was a little nervous because I was like, shit, I, I have not overcome addiction. I have not, I have not had many people close to me. I have had people in my family, but 
many people very close to me that have overcome addiction, but then I, I thought back a little bit more. And then I thought about all of the women that I've worked with, men that I've worked with, and friends that I've known who have overcome food addiction and who have tried to commit suicide, alcohol addiction. And I think we just put, again, the stigma that it is, you know, you have to be under a bridge. You have to be right. like, you have to lose your job. You have to all do all these things to qualify to be an addict or to be all these things. And that's just one of the million stigmas. But at the end of the day, it's anyone who has a problem that they don't know how to, you know, something that can only be only be addressed when they want it to be addressed. And I think that's a common denominator from what I have heard. Um, so I know for my listeners on the Hotter Than Health podcast, I'd love, I would love to hear your story. I think that to be honest, I don't, I don't think that I have really ever heard you <laughs> tell at length the detail of your story, which it's a long story and it's a big one, but you know, I'd love to hear where you got so deep rooted in your passion for sharing all of this. Well, I, I happy to. And I think that one of the things you, you hit on that's so important that I that I cover a lot is challenging the, 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 our preconceived notions of what addiction means, what struggling with your mental health means. Uh, as you said, we do a lot. I, I do a lot of work about the history of drug policy and, and, and the history of the war on drugs. And the reason we all think of that extreme example of addiction being the model, even though for your listeners, in case you didn't know this, uh, roughly between four and eight percent of users of substances will struggle with uh, actual that kind of addiction. I mean, that's a very small number, but we were led to believe this for so long because uh, the of the the preconceived notion that all drug use is bad and all all drug users are bad people. And then you hear stories like mine that really. I think helps challenge that preconceived notion because as you'll hear with my story, I didn't do anything wrong. It was done to me by a, by a therapist. And so when you hear that and you're like, all right, well, clearly he, you know, I, I as I like to joke, I, I, despite what you heard from Nancy Reagan's just say, no, I didn't start using drugs after a friend passed me a joint underneath the bleachers in seventh grade gym class. That wasn't my story. Uh, I did do that. But also that came later. That was after I was already uh, using a lot of substances and and. and my story actually starts as a preteen when I was put on ADHD medication uh, in the late 90s, uh, a time when uh, that particular diagnosis had grown um, from roughly 350,000 in the 80s when I was born to uh, almost 2 million in the late 90s. So clearly this was an explosion of this. And uh, with that, as with most things, comes an explosion of pharmaceutical interests. And so I was on all these different medications throughout my teenage years. Uh, unfortunately for me at the same time, I am a person who struggles with their mental health, uh, issues of depression, anxiety. Uh, I've had OCD my whole life. And so you take all of that and, and you give a person going through puberty, which we all remember how much fun that was, uh, high levels of medication and it creates this perfect storm uh, that many young people go through. Unfortunately for me, instead of seeing this perfect storm that he'd helped create, my therapist gave it a name. It was a mood disorder that he later called bipolar disorder. So by my late teens, uh, I am being treated for that as well. Uh, it, it was a misdiagnosis. I did not need those medications. And unfortunately, what happens when you are being given large amounts of medication you do not need, uh, bad things happen. Uh, I developed a, an issue of misuse and then eventually a full-blown medical addiction to multiple of these medications. 
Um, and by my early 20s, I'm on over five different medications a day, all of which I am misusing or, or, or addicted to. And at uh, 23 in, in, in 2009, uh, I attempted suicide twice in a two-day span. Uh, I overdosed the second night and survived uh, and spent the next three weeks in a lockdown unit, the next three months in a long-term care facility, what we would have called a mental institution 50 years ago, before finally checking myself out and going through what's called step-down detox uh, which is the opposite of cold turkey. Instead of quitting all at once, you you get a little bit out of your system every couple of days. Uh, and and that ended in the spring of 2010 when I was uh, 30, uh, almost 24. So uh, it was a long journey that, again, all started with a misdiagnosis, like, you know, nothing to do with the, the traditional stories of drug use and misuse that we hear. And uh, because of that, I love to use my story to help break down some of that stigma. And then once that stigma is, is, is broken down, help educate people on real stories around drug use and substance misuse and addiction. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that. And I think that the biggest, the biggest, I don't, I don't know how to say this and sound eloquent, but there have been in just my growing up, I'm 28 now. I was put on ADHD medicine or ADD medicine. I'm excuse me. ADD medicine when I was in seventh grade. And I remember my dad immediately took me off of it because I was mean. I was aggressive. I wasn't speaking, but my grades were better. I was like, he basically said, fuck this, get C's. Don't care. <laughs> like, do not care at all, but we, you can't be on this medication. And then I remember being in college and it was just the norm to say, Hey, do you have an Adderall? Hey, do you have an Adderall? Oh, I'm just going to take an Adderall because I have a test or I have to study. And it became not a drug. It just became a solution. Nobody thought of it as a pill. Nobody thought of it as a drug. Nobody thought of it as prescribed or a, yeah, prescribed substance. It was just something you did. It was like handing someone a beer or like a pencil. And it became so normalized that everyone else started to observe other small intricacies that were quote unquote wrong. So this is when girls would develop eating disorders and people would often say that they struggled with an eating disorder in college when typically it led, it became they didn't know how to eat when they were off of Adderall or they didn't know how to drink when they were off of Adderall. And that's a big one. A lot, a lot of people who have struggled with alcohol abuse have also um, struggled with Adderall addiction and not just Adderall, but any type of controlled substances like that. So, um, but when you mentioned that you had even beforehand dealt with, because anxiety is a huge time, not just a hot topic. It's just finally kind of getting the platform that it needs because it's been, people have been able to, define it and kind of place label emotions as anxiety. So people can understand it and they can relate and they're like, Oh shit, I didn't realize I had anxiety until you described that. And that's exactly what I have. Like my chest is tight. I wake up in the middle of the night with thoughts all the time. I am unable to articulate full sentences X, Y, Z. Can you talk about what it was like for you when you were a male struggling with anxiety? Cause I genuinely don't think that men get enough of a platform to be vulnerable with their mental health, anxiety, and depression. Yeah, so there's a couple of really important points that I think that you made in there. Number one, you're right that the ubiquity of Adderall was out of control. It's still, I don't know, I've been out of college now for so long, it 
church still is. However, I think That's what's really important. Still. What's really important to, to 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 know is that like if college kids were just sitting around and it was ubiquitous for them to to smoke meth, people would be up in arms, right? We would have uh, parents everywhere rioting. And yet even <laughs> that the sister drug of meth in a pill form is ubiquitous. And, and by the way, look that up. That is real. <laughs> meth and Adderall are closer related than they are dissimilar. They are sister drugs. So uh, that's- There's only one- one uh what is it one molecule that makes them different yeah yeah right they, they are they are literally a sister drug they are almost exactly the same so uh and and what's what's amazing about that obviously is that we all have this preconceived notion that meth is horrible and uh adderall is just a thing that you take if you need a focus so it's, it's pretty remarkable uh remarkable there uh your question about the anxiety is a good one because you're right men men as a whole uh, don't get as much uh, opportunity to talk about this. I mean, hell, even looking at my show, a majority of my guests are women, and, and that is something that I I do work at because uh, in every other space imaginable, women are underrepresented. So I do work very hard at making sure that women get a, a voice on my show. However, in the topic of mental health, it is a tough one, and a lot of guys don't want to talk about it. Um, you know, it's, it's something that early on I bought into that as my, my listeners know, I did not talk about this issue for the first five years I was in recovery. I kept quiet about my experience, uh, because that stigma is real. And I was afraid that if I admitted to all the stuff that I'd struggle with that, um, my, I would lose my livelihood at the time I was, I was in the middle of a, a decade of, of working in nonprofit or political fundraising. Uh, those, those careers are very tied to prestige and, uh, building relationships. And I thought if I admitted publicly that I was in recovery and that I struggled with my mental health, it would be the end of that. And the opposite happened. It brought more people to me and it really helped launch this career that, you know, uh, three years later I started doing full time and now I've been doing this for almost three years. So, um, it, it is all fluff. It is none of it's real. It is all stigma. Uh, you will not lose respect from your anybody in your life if you talk about this stuff. Uh, but but there still is that that stigma. And kind of going back to the point I made about earlier about the the general. You know, here was a guy serving in the. He was a two or three star general, highest rank, one of the highest ranks in the in the in the armed forces, and he lost his job because. Uh, of of his mental health struggles, and so there are places where it's it's more than stigma, right? I mean that that, that is a very real consequence. But until the rest of us sort of continue to talk about this and to break down that stigma in everyday life where that isn't abnormal right now to to hear that in in those very high pressure institutions where they they say oh you can't cut it if you don't it's a bunch of bullshit but but if in the everyday life when that is not true but we allow that stigma to make us think that it is until we continue to break those walls down we can't really tackle those in the places like that so uh it, it is it is incredibly prescient it is incredibly uh it, there are very real consequences from this and, and you know even though men have it harder in this respect it's not like y'all are, are are having an easy easy task with talking about your mental health too i mean you can do it a little easier but it's not like everyone's sitting around just waiting for you to open up absolutely i think that it, women definitely are more expressive so it it's just kind of easier to cast out lines maybe um or it seems to be so now i know that my audience definitely we do have some 
<laughs> we do have some uh, men who do listen and a lot of women who listen, you know, their partners and they talk about it, or maybe I train these people, but they, I would definitely love to hear some specifics from you. And I know that that's <laughs> Jack. I mean, it sounds like he's having a, a, a really good time back there. So uh, He's so low to the ground and so dense and heavy. He's a black lab basset hound mix. So he's just like very low and so sweet, but definitely taps. Um, but I know that a lot of the audience would love to hear some specifics from you. What, what was it like? Like what was a day in the life of Jay when you had anxiety? What were your thoughts? What were some things? And then so much so leading up to the fact that you tried to take your life two times. Let's not breeze over that. Well, so I will say that anxiety is still a part of my life. The only difference is I know how to manage it now. And that is directly a fault of uh, our education system that we are. I say this a lot, but why is it that growing up, you know, we had PE, we had gym class where we learned about our bodies and how to how to exercise or at least got out and ran a little bit. Uh, if we went to a school that was more progressive back when I was younger, now this is much more ubiquitous. But uh, we had sex ed where we learned about, you know, uh, sexual health. And, and in, in my case, that was part of a health class where we learned about calories and all that kind of stuff. And yet never once did we go to mental health class, right? We never learned how to take care of our mental health. And so I truly believe, uh, and a lot of people that come on my show say the same thing. If we had had better education around this stuff, way less of us would have struggled. I mean, this is something I push for in the, in the drug use space is if we teach kids honest drug health class, where we teach them how to spot uh, struggling with addiction or misuse early on, then we can teach them how to get help and let them know it's okay to do so instead of feeling like they may get arrested, which is still sadly the case with a lot of places. So um, education is key for me, at least uh, that the anxiety was, was a part of a, a, a really shitty puzzle. I mean, it was, it was all uh, wrapped up into one. When I was at my absolute worst, I was in such a rough spot that that and and a lot of this a majority of this was was the 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 misuse and addiction but you know there was just a complete lack of of comfortable enjoyment in my life let's put it that way in the sense that um I was using a lot of psilocybin mushrooms for magic mushrooms for those uninitiated uh, because I wanted to get out of my head so often so I was I was probably uh, using those three to four times a, a week in some stretches. Uh, I was smoking weed all day, every day, because it was the only thing that helped me feel calm, both mentally and physically. Um, I just was, I was so uh, high strung and so uh, unable to process my, my emotions and my thoughts because for so long I had been taught that anytime I had an unwelcome thought or, or feeling, the answer was to pop these medications that I was given. So again, we come back to this idea of education. I was taught the wrong thing instead of the right thing. And now as an adult who teaches this and an adult who, who uh, actually works hard at this, I, you know, there are a lot, there's a lot that I do every day to, to take better care of this. And so even though uh, anxiety is still a big part of my life, it is a thing that I am able to manage in a way that I was not a decade ago. And when you talk about um, managing it now on a day-to-day -day basis, what are some of the tools that you have in your tool toolbox that help you 
you know, not just, you know, CBD or meditation? What are some things that uniquely have helped you? Yeah, that's a great question. I am a big believer in CBD. It's such a shame that we kept this uh, not not legal or not accessible for so many people for so long uh, because mm-hmm. a lot of people are like saying, oh, this is such a new thing. It's not new. This has been around forever. There have been people for decades saying this, but they weren't listened to because, uh, you know, weed was illegal. Um, but but you're right. So th- I think the, the right word you said there is meditation. I can and don't enjoy meditation. I can meditate. I do not enjoy it. Uh, unfortunately, meditation has become the sort of uh, the number one tool. And let's be honest, for a lot of people, meditation is hard. It is a really hard thing to do where even if you can do it, you may not get the benefit out of it that all these people, look, my dad thinks Tim Ferriss is like the fucking king. And, and that's cool. You know, the guys like him and, you know, all these dudes who are doing this amazing work to help people bring mindfulness into their lives. I respect it because we need more people like them in the boardroom saying this. However, it took me multiple years of interviewing people. This is before I even started my podcast of talking to therapists, of interviewing uh, thought leaders on other ways to add mindfulness to your life because they're so hard to find because nine out of 10, 90 out of 100 articles that you read are only about meditation. And so I I have a whole list of things. This is what I teach from. Um, I actually have a course up on Listenable, which is a great online platform uh, called uh, Beyond. No, it's Mindfulness Without Meditation. That's what it's called. Uh, and this is something that I do with clients now is that, you know, it's not fair to them that they hear from every direction. Oh, to, to be mindful means to meditate. That's not true. My, a meditation is a form of mindfulness. It's not the only one. So, um, you know, these are things that I do every day. I think the biggest one, the one that I love talking about the most is what's called the daily check-in. It's a, it's a journaling uh, exercise. Uh, once a day, I sit down with my phone, although I, I know people who use, uh, you know, an actual notepad, good on them. Uh, and and they, they sit there and the goal of this is to tap into your subconscious because uh, most of what's going on inside your brain, we're not even aware of, right? And if you're not taking the time to get down there, you're going to have a lot of weeds growing that you're not going to be aware of. And most of those you can deal with yourself just by spending some time uh, with them. Some of them you can't. Some of the shit that you, you figure out that you that you hear down there or you find down there is going to be terrifying. And that's what a good therapist will help you know work with you on. So the goal is it's very simple. You, you just write the words I feel and complete the sentence. And at first... The, 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 the first things are going to be the surface level, right? I feel annoyed. I feel hungry, all this kind of stuff. But the more that you do it, you'll start tapping into things. This happens to me all the time. I'll literally complete that sentence and then stop and go, oh, shit. I didn't, I didn't know that I was thinking that, right? Because that's the way that you let your subconscious boil up is you kind of open it up and, and you give it space. You know, our brains are very much like a garden, right? And we're only aware of what's on top. But until you get down there and get your hands dirty and actually start pulling up le- weeds, you're not going to know what's going on beneath the surface. So that is definitely one that I recommend every day. And, and a lot of that stuff, honestly, the minute you write it down, it's gone. You're like, okay, I can, you can feel yourself breathing a little bit easier. It's just not this shit that you're carrying around anymore. But like I said, occasionally you'll pull something up and you'll go, 
I don't have the tools to, to, to take care of that by myself, I'm going to take that one into my therapist's office. And from talking to, to so many therapists on this, I can tell you that they love this shit because they don't want to spend time on your, no offense, on your everyday bullshit. They don't want to spend that time. That's not fun for them. But when they're sitting there actually talking about real stuff with you, that's why they got into this. And it's the, it's the, the, the place where you two can do your best work. So try this exercise, and if you are a little worried by what comes up, that's okay. It's very normal. We all have those thoughts, uh, but if you're worried, take it into your therapist. I love that, and also I just therapy, therapy, therapy. There are so many different, even online platforms, and you know, therapy might be like a hundred bucks a session, but there are some. That, and honestly, the more you do it, the better. It's not one of those things where it's like the gym and it's like eating healthy. It's like one salad a month is not a health not going to make. But same thing as like doing one push up every month. It's not going to like make you strong, but you want to do it consistently. And it is like flexing a little muscle. I think that's really great. But um, yeah, I mean, even like things like practice or um, better help is a fantastic platform. Lots of different platforms online right now that are super resourceful and, and sorry, go ahead. No, I'll say, let me give a shout out to one that I think everybody needs to know about because you're right. <laughs> you're dancing around a little bit, but therapy is really hard to find for some people. It's yeah. very expensive. And if you can even find someone, my, my, my listeners know and everybody here in Philadelphia knows, I've been bitching about this lately since we moved almost four months ago. I've reached out to now 13 therapists. Only three got back to me. Two of them didn't have availability. And the one person uh, flat out denied me because of my insurance. And I have insurance, so yeah. it's very hard to find. Uh, check out the website Peer Collective. Uh, so what's great about Peer Collective is that they are um, not therapists. They are all people. The only qualification is you have to test very high in empathy, and then you get trained by them in their in their uh, responses. And their goal is not to provide therapy. They're not therapists. Their goal is to be that person that sits with you and helps you sort of uh, just be with some of these issues, right? They're not going to replace your therapist, and that's not their goal. However, you know, just like we all have that friend, I know you do, who who kind of uh, uses you as their therapist, right? They don't, they don't have someone. And so they reach out to you every time there's something big going on in life. And that's fine. We all want to be there for our friends. But after the third, fourth, fifth of those in like, let's say two or three weeks, you're like, yo, dude, this is what a therapist is for, right? Peer Collective will be that person for you. Like They'll be like, all right, let's talk about this stuff. And here's the best part. It's cheap as shit. It's like 20 bucks for a half an hour, like 40 bucks maybe for an hour. So if you're just working through some stuff, if you just want someone to be there, I recommend Peer Collective. They're new. They're, they're changing the game, and I love them. Oh, there we go. Good plug. I'm going to put that in the show notes. That's fantastic. And I think it's nice to just have another human and someone, I think that there's a lot of pressure when you go into a therapist office that you have to like, honestly, that you have to have problems. And a lot of the time, my, my therapist would even say, Hey, come in on days where you're feeling great. Like, let's figure out why you're feeling great. What's, what's not on your mind. It kind of sometimes makes you realize, wow, I worry about this constantly. So that's one thing that I would also like to say, but so, so then I think this is a great opportunity to, to pivot a little bit and, yeah. and talk all about your experience in this realm because, you know, as I alluded to earlier, 
literally like we had barely met when you went through one of the things that they always rank highest on uh, life tra- uh, traumas, right? And I was so lucky to get to meet your mother before she passed away, but we didn't have a lot of time together because she was she was already uh, towards the the end of her battle with with cancer. So, what was I mean? In, did you have a good therapist after that? Or how did you deal with all of that in the aftermath of, of her passing? So let me tell you that the exact way that we started our conversation today is the way I have handled the past four years is address slightly and then deflect and then ask questions. Um, and that is how, okay. So starting back, I was 24, I was living in Arizona and that's where I was living when I was, I was flying back and forth from Arizona to Charlotte almost every weekend. And, and I also would like to say, I want to put this out there that I don't have hard feelings about certain people that I know you are close with Jay and certain family members who I've become distant with because of all of this. And, you know, I just want to put it out there that that does not make people, people bad. It just means that sometimes you learn that people do not serve you and maybe you don't serve them and you have to create boundaries, which is part of my journey. So it was very challenging when my mom was diagnosed, of course, thinking, okay, my mom, she has thyroid cancer. It is typically one of the type of cancers that people beat. We all went into it imagining this is really horrible and tragic and terrible and And my mother, she was a professional public speaker and her whole life was her throat chakra and the way she communicated. And so knowing that this was going to be, you know, severed and sacrificed in a way was really devastating initially. But then as we started to find out more about the kind that it was, was when I just remember, I just remember there they gave us a handful of papers. There was a lot going on. And I know that Rick already knew this at one point, but I think that I was kind of the one to really be able to tell my sister and tell um, myself. And there was a piece of paper amongst hundreds scattered on the living room table. And if you've ever dealt with anyone sick going through any medical papers, there's, it's so overwhelming. There's shit everywhere in the house. Things start to pile up. You have to stay organized, but at the, same, at the same time, there's going to be an area in your house where there's like files and papers and stuff that you don't understand and insurance and bills. And I saw one piece of paper that narrowed down four types of thyroid cancer. And I just had a flash in my mind from the 10 minutes that I spoke with mom's doctor. I remember him using a word and a plastic. And I knew this word, it just, some words just stay. And I read this on this piece of paper and it said number four, anaplastic. And it said survival rate, there isn't one. And it is, you can't imagine what it's like to have someone that didn't even mean to tell you, that's not even a person, tell you that your mom isn't going to make it. And she's upstairs. And anyway, so that's that's where my crisis started because I still had an escape. I still was going back to Arizona, still had my job, and then I would come back every weekend and take care of her. As soon as things took a turn for the worse, I said, fuck this. I don't know exactly how long she has, but I'm going to move. So I moved from Arizona to 
Charleston or Charleston because I knew she didn't have long and there was just no way I could be in Charlotte. Like I couldn't be around that type of energy after it happened. So one thing that I would like to say and normalize is the fact that it is okay to not be super emotional in the way that it seems like you should be when these things are happening. People are like, oh my God, your mom is dying, all these things. What was the hardest for me was getting through the day around the energy of people that I was around. And not just, not my mom. My mom was the easiest to deal with, in my words. But some of the people that I was around, death really brings out a really not great side sometimes. And I think that a lot of my trauma started when I started to realize that I, I don't even know how to put this because I'm still working through a lot of this. I don't know how, how to put it other than the fact that I think that, I think it was harder for me to understand how people around me were operating because it's my, in my nature. And I knew it was in my mom's nature to make sure people were comfortable. Are you happy? What are you okay? Making sure everyone else is around me is like in a good space. And I completely neglected myself and I got, I got a lot of hate for the way I was trying to make money during that time. Cause I was still paying rent in Arizona. I was paying rent in Charleston. And all I knew was I don't have a job right now. My job wouldn't let me re- go remote. I was like, fuck, I've got thousands of dollars in rent and I'm making zero dollars and I was getting shamed for how I was making money, which was like personal training, online clients, and nutrition. And because, again, stigma-wise and perception-wise, that's not a way to really make a living. And there was so much shame thrown at me that I just had to bottle and now it's really challenging to even sometimes say, Hey, yeah, I'm a podcaster, even though I've been doing this for four years, because it's not the conventional form of the success. Um, so I think that after my mom passed and I was with her holding her hand, like changing her feeding tube three days before the doctor, any like so much, so much with the actual death that happened, but it took a year and a half of numbness, of overworking, completely becoming a control freak about my body, what I was eating. I wouldn't go out past like 9 p.m. because if I didn't get eight hours, my day was ruined. Just so much control, rigid, absolutely like shaking every day. I wasn't regular. I like you could see it in my skin. I was hollow and like dating different people, treating them like shit, just horrible. And when I would drink, it was like, I would drink and I would drink hard. And then I would feel guilty about it for weeks. And anyways, um, and then a month and a half later, I saw a therapist. Oh, funny story about this actually. (laughs) So I met my therapist at my gym that I went to and I said, I think we got to talk. And she knew I had a podcast at the time. This was four years ago. And I showed up to her office and I sat down and she starts going like this. She starts like flipping her hair. She's ready for, and I'm like, I start just sobbing. I just sit down and I start to cry because I'm like, oh, a safe space. And she thought I was there to interview her 
on the podcast. <laughs> she goes, she's like, oh, 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 and she grabs a piece of paper and a pen and just starts like scribbling some stuff, like immediate crier. And um, I just thought that was so funny. I was like, no, I need you to talk to me. Um, but so I started going to therapy, but what really came up was realizing that a lot of, a lot of what I wanted to do was just make, make my mom proud and being so nervous that I would never, you know, be able to help fill out her legacy. And, and I think that a lot of people deal with this shame and we carry it in so many different ways. And I genuinely believed that I was like, I just went through the hardest thing I'm ever going to go through. I'm not going to ever feel again. I don't think I'm ever going to feel again. And that's a lot of what therapy helps me with. I think, I mean, one of our third or fourth sessions, she gave me a feelings chart. I felt like a fucking fourth grader. She gave me a feelings chart so I could look at the words and be able to label what I was feeling. And I still refer back to that. And that's incredibly helpful. Um, in a long-winded answer, I think that when you met me, I was in survival mode and unable to connect. And I literally was just putting on a show every day. And at night, would sleep hard and just think, okay, repeat, put a mask on again. And I don't even, I wasn't even crying at this time because I just numbed. So it was a very intense time and it still is. And I still are, I'm still struggling with it um, a lot, especially now that my sister is pregnant, seeing all these things happen. My boyfriend, his mom is no longer with us either. So I'm like, well, fuck. I got to find some mother figure. Um, and it's, it is challenging. So I, I really just implore anyone to not wait, like don't wait almost two years to go seek therapy after a traumatic event. I just can't, I wish that I had done more for myself and I wish that I had allowed people to help me and talk to me, but I didn't want it. It was I genuinely like an addict. I just thought, okay, I don't need it. I had, I don't have a problem. I'm fine. And until I like sat myself in a mirror and just couldn't look at myself, then I knew I had to go to therapy. So there is uh, obviously a lot in there, a lot of different directions that we, we could take. Um, I, I think first good on you for, for doing it. A lot of people, like, I mean, this is literally people I've worked with who are, are, you know, we'll go through something traumatic. We'll start go working together. And as I say a lot, I don't do a lot of coaching anymore because my goal is to get someone to go to therapy at the end of the day, like is to graduate beyond me. Like I want that for them and it doesn't happen as often as I would like, or you would hope, uh, but they'll like go through something traumatic and then you'd be like, Oh, but I don't need therapy. And it's like, what, why would you like think you, what is going on in your head? What's the mental gymnastics that working with me makes sense but not a therapist. Like, like I don't, I don't understand that. I think um, that people are so scared to see the truth. And I think that people are scared to feel that sense of hurt that, I mean, at the end of the day, nobody wants to be told that there's nothing they can do to fix it. At the end of the day, I didn't want to be told your mom is dead and you just have to move forward. It's way easier to sit in pain than it is to know that you are in pain and out of control. 
you know. So, so was was your therapist able to help you process some of this or, or was it I mean, I know that when you go through something like that, simply simply sitting there and being OK is the first step. You know, was your therapist able to help you then take the next step of starting to work through some of it? Yes. And a big part of what we did was in the form of, I think that I needed someone, she was super soft. She was, there are some therapists that will tell you directly like it is. They just listen and they tell you and they're straight up. Um, I didn't know what I needed, but I knew what I didn't need. And I didn't need someone to be super aggressive and harsh with me. Um, She was super soft. So I think going into it, we had the right connection off the bat. And that's super important to be able to open up to someone if you feel like there's a good connection there. Um, She really, like you mentioned before, one of the things that still helps me that I'm I'm a little resistant to just because I'm not, I don't really love writing, but writing things down, I have had a lot of clients, nutrition clients that I've worked with on mindset who we just write, you know, I have a million different writing prompts, like just her asking what do I love about myself? What kind of shame am I holding on to? Figuring out and unpacking the type of shame that I was holding on to that was not allowing me to grieve properly. And a lot of that did come with like some stepdad issues. A lot of it came with some abandonment issues that I felt and some shame issues that I felt and then instability. And I think that I just always felt, I told her this all the time. I said, it feels like someone shook my snow globe and the, the snow has never settled. And I don't even know what the picture on the ground is supposed to look like. Like, I have no idea what I want my life to look like. It just, she went in and helped me understand that it doesn't have to look like anything, but we're always after a feeling. And what are we feeling right now? What, what do we desire to feel? When in our lives can we look back and say, this is a time that's been super impactful and happy and, and progressive for me? And progress is a big thing for me. Like I'm definitely an achiever. I like to tick things off my list and I like to be known for people and be a professional and whatever. But I, I think that knowing that it's not always about achieving is really helpful. Um, and for her, she helped me with a lot of writing prompts and journals and we worked through shame and I actually need to see her again because I feel like I've just recently discovered some like childhood shit. And now I'm like, I keep writing it down, but I don't want to lose it. And so, but she's so busy and I can't get it. It's like, I can't get to her. So maybe I'll call that hotline. <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, it's when you, when you, it's one of the reasons that therapists always like, uh, when, when, um, you leave their office. One of the last things they always say is like, when do you want to see us next or see me next? I mean, part of that is because you got to keep that ball rolling. But the other part is that like for them to make money, they kind of have to be at full capacity all the time. And so sucks for them, but also for you, because if you don't make that immediate appointment, the chances of you getting back anytime soon are pretty slim, which is a stupid broken business model uh, that a little bit of the blame goes on therapists for continuing to perpetrate it, but also that's unfortunately how the industry works. So totally, uh, totally. it's pretty fucked up. It is fucked up, but also I, it does here. Let's play devil's advocate here. Cause that's just how I am. I am so pleased at how many people are going to therapy and talking about it right now. It has become so much less stick. There's way less stigma on it. 
than there was even a few years ago, um, even for little kids going to therapy, talking about it. And, and I think therapy sounds like you're going to go in and to a psych ward, you know, you're going to go in and hopefully it's a comfortable place that you feel safe in. And that's sometimes all people need is like a space to feel safe in, even if they just sit on their hands with their thumb up their ass for an hour, you know, they can, they just deserve a safe space and a space where people will listen and help to like pick up on those words that they've, that their friends haven't been able to. Um, I do remember even when I was in middle school, I'm sorry, elementary school, my parents sent me to therapy and we just played games. I think she would ask me like how I was feeling. And I do remember like, it smelled like mothballs, but it was such a cool space. And I remember enjoying going because I would always get a piece of candy when I left. It was like a Werther's and I was so pumped about it. I know it's, that's, I'm in the right business, but I uh, definitely remember my parents thinking that they did something traumatic to me and my sister because they didn't, well, actually they didn't send my sister to therapy. They just sent me to therapy. Um, so I was, it was after their divorce and I was probably six and so that was my first time in therapy. Basically, I've been in therapy for 22 years. So, yeah, kids therapy is very different. I, I also have similar memories of, of therapy that was like this game and we would talk while we played it. Um, but to piggyback on what we were just saying, yes, there are more people going to it. However, a recent study found that the, the, uh, the therapy is one of the highest businesses in terms of underserved. So uh, this was there was an estimate. This, this uh, It's hard to estimate these numbers, but what they were trying to say was that roughly of the therapists needed to cover as uh, what is needed in that industry, there is currently 10% working. So 90% more therapists would be needed to adequately treat everybody. And they put the blame almost entirely on two things. Number one, how expensive it is to go to school. Uh, they said, obviously, unless you are independently wealthy or willing to take on all this debt, you can't be a therapist. Or two, um, insurance makes it so hard to work in this space that a lot of people are saying, I, I don't have any interest in doing it. So uh, what do you, what do you, where do you see it going? That's a great question. Um, so here's something that a lot of people unfortunately don't know. In 2010, I'm going to say 10, it might have been 11. Uh, as part of the initial Obamacare Act, uh, Congress passed what is called parity. And what that means is if your insurance plan offers physical insurance, which all of them do, not only must they offer mental health coverage, they must also offer mental health coverage at the same level as your physical health. That is literally a law. Do you want to guess how many insurance companies take it or, or, or live up to that law? 2%. Goose egg. Not a single one. Uh, the reason is it's super expensive for them to do. And they know that none of our amazing people in Washington will, will call them out on it. And so even though that was part of the law, it's completely ignored. Wow. Um, and so because of that, there, there's good and bad here. We don't have to pass a new law. It already exists. The bad side is there's now this precedent of, well, okay, we have it, but it's ignored. So is there an opportunity for this to, to, to have a change in Washington that forces insurance to live up to the parity law? Of course there is. Is it likely? Not really. So uh, I have no hope. However, <laughs> passing, passing laws is really fucking hard. 
And so the fact that it already exists gives me at least a glimmer of hope that one day there will be some kind of deal where it's like, okay, we're not going to insurance people. We're not going to make you do all this stuff, but we are going to make you live up to the law that we already have. So that gives me a little bit of hope. However, there's not much. Honestly, let me tell you, I have worried for five minutes in the past five years about my teeth and my gums, which I'm not proud to admit. But then in the past five years, I have thought every single fucking day about therapy and anxiety. And let me tell you how many times I've gone to the dentist. Again, (laughs) goose egg. You're also young. You've got a little bit of time. I mean, I don't think these things are falling out anytime soon, but like the bicuspids are fine right now, but the the headspace is a little tough. Um, But so what I also would like to touch on is talking about how we can holistically approach a friend. Uh, Because I think that before we, sometimes we don't see any problem, whether it's addiction to food, narcotics, X, Y, Z. We don't see a problem until we see it in someone else first. Um, and I have a lot of friends who take Adderall and I have a lot of friends who struggle with Adderall and it has turned into eating and drinking disorders and it's fucking terrifying. So when you are, and obviously we are not like, we're not therapists, we're not trying to diagnose anybody, but we want to be a friend and we want to be an advocate and an ally. What can we, what are some things that people may pick up on with a friend who may be struggling with some type of addiction. So you're right. We are not therapists. I will say, thankfully, the one th- I've got a couple certificates, but the one that I'm actually multi-time certified in is what's called mental health first aid, which is this exact topic of how do you approach somebody who is struggling uh, and provide them help in the moment, not to be their therapist, right? Neither one of us is that, and I'm not trying to be that, but how to to help them navigate the next X path, right? Uh, and by the way, to everybody listening, this is not a thing that I had to work with. I mean, there are multiple online programs to be certified in this. Uh, John Hopkins has a great one. Uh, the Red Cross, the same way that I'm actually about to get uh, certified again in first aid this week. Same thing for mental health first aid. They have an online class. It's a whole thing. Oh, awesome. Yeah, you should definitely do it um, because you can also then, I, I can't remember if it was Hopkins or it might have been John Hopkins, where they have a secondary level that actually gets you certified to respond in times of, of uh, like uh, uh, community crisis. So it's like a tornado comes through. They, they put the call out and you know people who have this training go and, and help. So definitely recommend check out both John Hopkins mental uh, actually John Hopkins calls it psychological first aid red cross calls it mental health first aid so check those out um so so this is something that i i i very much uh care about so really quick to define a couple of things for people when it comes to to drug use and substance misuse so on one end of the spectrum you have drug use right it's going out and having a beer after work it's it's sitting down to smoke a joint at the end of the day nothing negative it's just using a substance and everybody's good Moving down that spectrum, you encounter the very broad uh, umbrella that we call substance misuse. Uh, In in years past, you would have heard abuse. Uh, You still hear that on occasion. Uh, That's going away, uh, mostly because of the stigma attached to it. You know, when you think of the word abuse, what do you think of? Nothing good. 
um, you think of very violent acts. Uh, so, so, so we're replacing that with misuse. And that umbrella covers everything, as I said before, of that 4 to 8% on the absolute end of the spectrum that is full-blown medical addiction. And again, we use that term addiction a lot. Addiction is a medical term. It's the same thing as cancer. I mean, it is a medical diagnosis. Uh, as I said, it is a very small percentage, 4 to 8%, despite what you may have heard from DARE or anything like that, 4 to 8% of people uh, have uh, a full-blown medical addiction. Now, there is a wide uh, umbrella for, between use and addiction, and that's substance misuse. And that includes everything from the college kid who binge drinks every you know Friday and Saturday night all the way to the person who, uh, let's say, wakes up and then smokes weed all day. Now, as we know, cannabis is not physically addictive. It is meant, It does cause mental dependence. And those two things are very different. Um, uh, to, to be full-blown addiction, you have to fit the, the, the diagnostic definition, which includes both mental and physical dependency. Uh, and that physical dependency is withdrawal symptoms and stuff like that. Cannabis doesn't fit that. However, it does cause mental dependence in some users. So that umbrella is very wide. Um, that's the one that we're most concerned with, right? Because a person struggling with addiction, as I did for a number of years, once you're there, you can't hide this shit anymore. A full-blown addiction is as obvious as, you know, think of any other major medical issue, Um you know, full-blown addiction is the equivalent, and again, I hate, I'm sorry to use this example, uh, but full, stage four cancer. I mean, it is out in the open. You cannot hide this this issue anymore. However, as we know, that's a very small percentage of people who struggle with any disorder, of any medical issue at all. Most people aren't going to get to that extent. They're going to be higher or farther up on that, on that spectrum. So those are the people that we're worried about because unlike, let's say, again, cancer, we don't allow people to talk about this. We ask that people keep this stuff to themselves. And... There's a lot of reasons for that. That stigma is a big one, but uh, there's a lot of fears. Uh, there was a study done uh, about a year ago that I read this in Psychology Today. Uh, they did a survey of HR leaders and found that only one in four felt comfortable talking to someone about substance misuse in the workplace. Uh, and so if you are a person struggling with this in the workplace and you know that there's a three in four chance that your HR person is not going to handle this conversation well, are, are you going to talk to them? No, you're not going to say anything. So there are multiple ways that you can approach this conversation. Uh, but the very easiest one, literally the easiest, is, as I say on my show a lot, I love this phrase, vulnerability begets vulnerability and empathy begets empathy. If you want someone to be open, you don't beat them down. You don't demand that they tell you the truth. That never works. Maybe it does in Hallmark movies, but it doesn't work in real life. You get people to open up by being that person who opens up first to them. And they're not going to respond in that moment. If that's your expectation, you're going in with wrong expectations. What they are going to do is know that you're a person that, that can be trusted. You're a person that they can talk to. So, so if you're sitting over lunch with a, with a buddy during the workday, be willing to have that conversation. Be willing to talk to them about the stuff you're struggling with. Be willing to, as I do literally every day, tell them your story. And 
you know, if you're concerned after a couple times of being open like that, they're going to know that you can, they can talk to you. Then it's okay for you to broach that topic with them. You know, Hey, you know, we've been talking a lot about me. What's going on with you? You know, I've been noticing whatever, uh, a couple of warning signs are, if this is someone that you care deeply about that, you know, really well, you spend a lot of time with, uh, the, the, the most marketed sign of both extreme uh, struggles with misuse, but also of depression uh, or, or other uh, issues of mental health is if they start losing enjoyment in something that they normally do enjoy. Uh, so a perfect example is, you know, I'm a big, let's say, baseball fan, right? And the Reds are coming here to Philadelphia in a couple of weeks, and I can't wait uh, to go. If all of a sudden I told my wife, you know, I don't really want to go. I'd rather we just stay home. She would know, okay, there's something going on because that's something that I love. And so if you hear or hearing that from your partner and they don't really want to talk, oh, I just don't want to go. I want to stay home. You know, yeah, there's probably something going on with them. And and in that moment, it's not the right time to talk about it because they're not going to want to they're, they're going to close down. But later you can go, hey, you know, I was really worried at when you said that. Let's something you want to tell, tell me what's what's going on. The, the overall message I guess I want to leave on this is don't be afraid. It, it, people say this all the time. Well, but, but what if I'm wrong? What if they get mad at me? I mean, they may. Uh, but if you're worried about that, you're going to be racked with that guilt if you don't say anything and something terrible happens. Yeah. What um, When you were, I don't want to say, I don't want to minimize it, but when you were at your rock bottom and you were in, this was crisis mode Were your parents, you know, you were in, um, you know, of course you went through different types of rehab, but what, or not rehab, but, um, yeah, you went through different, what is the right word to use? I mean, I, I don't want to go so, but again, I say rehab be, when I'm not telling my story because it just makes it easy. Okay. Um, and in reality, uh, if I want to be technical about it, I say lockdown and uh, in- institutionalization or uh, whatever okay. the case is. I was not sent to rehab because unfortunately, uh, sort of the, the, the more detail of that part of my story is because of the misdiagnosis, everybody in my life thought that I was still struggling from bipolar disorder. It wasn't until I got to the long-term care facility and met people with bipolar disorder and people struggling with addiction that I went, oh, wait a minute, I don't have that, but that I recognize. So uh, I, my, my story, my, my transition was a little bit different uh, from struggling to recovery than a lot of people's. Do you remember a time when a friend reached out to you thinking that something was wrong? I do. I, I um, Unfortunately for me, and, and so I'm going I'm to answer that question a little bit backwards. When I attempted suicide, both times... I called the same person not to tell them, you know, I'm scared, I need help, but to tell them what I was doing. Uh, and and the first night, the reason I, I wasn't able to accomplish it is that that friend texts two other friends who rushed over to stop me. The next night, I took the pills first. Uh, that's how I attempted to, to kill myself and ended up overdosing. Uh, and then called the same friend who called 911. So I... There were people that had expressed concern. However, unfortunately for me, again, I'm in the minority here. My issue was a misdiagnosis. And so I was able to explain it away with, oh, but this is I just have bipolar disorder. Now, unfortunately, the devil's advocate side or or the flip side of that is that's exactly what caused me to attempt suicide was that 
I had explained away what was happening in my life as this diagnosis. And then the realization hit me of, okay, I've been given this medication for going on five years. Not only am I not getting better off this medication that's supposed to help me, it's actually making it worse. And so instead of saying, wait a minute, maybe something is up with that, I said, clearly I am uh, un unrecoverable, I'm unfixable, and that's what led me to attempt suicide. So I'm not the best example in this case. Um, however, I actually have a, 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 a conversation later today with someone who went through a very similar experience heard me on a podcast, reached out and said, I am where you were. I need help. So there are people who go through this. If you are one of them, please reach out. But not using me for an example here for a second, there were multiple times after this all went down that people came out of the woodwork. I, I mean, I remember being in the lockdown unit uh, and, and we didn't have cell phones or anything like that. This was 2009. Cell phones existed, but I was in the hospital. We all had our pay phones. Or, or, or landlines. And, uh, you know, I remember being on the phone with friends and, and, and them being very caring and very loving. And, and the stark dichotomy of here, two days earlier, I was sure that nobody cared. And now here I am, everybody's obviously expressing their love. So would it have made a difference if all of that happened two days before? Of course it would have. You know, uh, if someone had reached out then um, and said, you know, I know you're struggling, can I, you know, or, or come over, right? Uh, it would have made a huge difference, but uh, everybody loves to come out of the woodwork after you know these things, not 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 before. Totally. And can I ask a detailed question with that? When sure. when for the second time, when you're when you did it first, you took the pills first. When the police came to your house, were you living by yourself? Were the doors locked? Were they able <laughs> to get in? Like how the fuck? Like I'm, I'm nervous. Oh, this is oh. such a shitty part of the story. Um, oh, so, God. so what I was living in a drug house, I own this house, uh, but I was living with, uh, like 10 other people in a three bedroom house. And the only thing we had in common is we were all using a lot of drugs together. And, and I say this again, as a person who advocates for safe and healthy drug use, we were using unhealthily together. There was no, no safe drug use happening in this house. So, um, now let's think about this for a second. If, if everybody in this house is using drugs and one person overdoses, imagine if I hadn't called this friend, do you think everybody else living in the house would have called 911? Fuck no. Probably not, right? Because what's the last thing that they want to see at that moment? A cop car. Okay, makes common sense, right? Uh, unfortunately, that's still how we treat this issue in, in, the, in the country, even though it doesn't make sense. That night, uh, again, like I said, my friend called 911 and as we do in this country, for whatever reason, they sent a cop and no ambulance. So the cop knocks on the door and says, he's looking for Jay Schiffman. Um, one of my last memories of the night is coming downstairs. Cause I, I, I see the, the lights and the, and, the, and I hear the cop. I don't know what's going through the mind of everybody else I'm living with, but the cop <laughs> handcuffs me. He takes me out of the house and the last thing I remember before succumbing to my overdose is he slams my head off the side of his cop car while trying to throw me in the back seat. Um, and that's it. Then I black out. So luckily for me, he takes takes me straight to the hospital and, and I get the medical care that I needed. 
but a lot of people aren't that lucky, you know. Um, and, and what's really interesting is I, I posted this this story right when the the calls about uh, after after the the murder of George Floyd when people were sharing their stories with 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 cops and I I shared this. And there were so many different responses, but some of them were, well, I don't know what you're complaining about. They came to get you. And my comment was, well, why the fuck was a cop there? You know, why was I being let out of my house while in overdose in handcuffs? Why was I being bounced off the side of a cop car while in overdose? No other country and and, and honestly, no one else, no other medical issue is treated this way other than overdose. So uh, I lived through a reason why we should rethink the way we handle some of these issues. Uh, and, and it was the, you know, <laughs> if, if I had gone into full-blown overdose in the backseat of his car, he would have had no idea what to do for me in that moment. And he shouldn't have been put in that situation. So what was, um, and just to take a step backwards slightly, what did he say when he put you in handcuffs? I don't have no memory. I was, I was, I had taken enough that I was starting to, as I said, I blacked out literally 30 seconds later. So I have, I barely remember this moment. Yeah. And uh, the next moment I, I, I remember coming to handcuffed to a bed at the hospital for a brief moment. And then I remember coming to, as I describe it, it's almost like a scene from a movie where I I have this distinct image of reality tunnel visioning rushing back to me, like consciousness. And I'm in I'm in the the lockdown unit. I'm sitting there in scrubs uh, and I'm I'm like next. I I can't remember if it was my mom or I might have been my aunt's a therapist and had spent the night sitting next to my bed at the hospital monitoring me. And it might have been her. But I remember looking around, grabbing the chair and going, oh, my God, where the fuck am I? Because I had no memory of what was going on. Yeah. And they told me I was in, you know, in an in intake at this lockdown facility uh, where I would end up spending three weeks. Uh, but that was I mean, there's almost uh, almost a day just not there. Yeah. Well, so that's I mean, that's that is a that is a incredible story it's an incredible story and i i hate that that was the experience but i also don't at the same time like i'm you're here to say you're here to tell your story right now and um i also think that a lot of times people don't think about the other end of people who may say that they love you but they're also scared of ruining their lives you know they don't want to call the cops xyz and i I hear this all the time even on a day-to-day basis like friends myself like people who have been drinking over the weekend they think oh well this is a really easy road to drive there are no cops down here i'm not going to get a dui i'm just gonna i'm like i don't give a fuck if you get a dui i care if you kill yourself if you flip yourself off this bridge you know there's a lot there's a bigger picture out there but i get that short term people think that it kind of goes back to that unspoken invincibility um that people think that they have i'm like uh you could also die but well either way i'm just I just love that you're an advocate for not just an advocate, but you're such a resource with truth, choose your struggle. And, and I hope to be that way for people in the nutrition and wellness side of things. And I do genuinely believe that so many people that I, I mean, I know that so many people that I worked with who come to me saying, I need help with nutrition. I need help with just tell me what to eat and I'll eat it. It's weight. It's, it's X, Y, Z it's hormones. 
But at the end of the day, it always ends up being about anxiety. It, be, it ends up being about depression. Either they go see a therapist or they start to do this work on themselves that they had no idea and they're completely elevated and they realize that food is just a symptom. Um, and, or it's just, and I've been there because I remember thinking like, what can I control? My mom's death was not in my control even a little bit. So I'm gonna take my own health into my control and I became obsessive. Um, and now I'm like, oh, I put on a pound, it's fine. Like I'm not, you know, I'm. if I see myself in a, not looking my favorite in a bikini, it's like that used to tear me apart. I would think about it for weeks and just, you know, the different mindset. And obviously these are two very different ends of the spectrum, but it all starts somewhere. And when you talk to your parents about this now, I know you're close with your parents and they're fantastic people. What do they recall about this time? So, yeah. So, um, first I, I definitely think that being an incredible advocate as you are for, for your people is, is it's important in a lot of ways, but I think you're right that being able to, I mean, it's just such a it's such a reductive uh, phrase, but I'm going to use this. Practice what you preach is so important, right? Um, this is something that I've struggled with in the sense of there are days where I don't want to give an interview. I'm not feeling it. I'm, I'm struggling. And then I use that, right? And then I'm like, you know, uh, when when we're talking about mental health, I'll be like, I'll be honest, you know, I'm not feeling it today, um, but this is what I'm going to do to, to work on it, right? And so that vulnerability piece is what allows us to connect with people. And I definitely think that, you know, being able to say to someone, this is what you should be doing. By the way, I'm struggling with that right now, right? It's struggling, you know, it's hitting me that this is whatever. And we don't have to be on a pedestal for people to listen to us. If anything, it's very opposite. I I would say exactly it's the opposite, right? That was a very, uh, I'm going to use this phrase because I love it, okay, boomer kind of thing. It was like, you had to be perfect to lead this company. And none of them are. There's not a single person out there who is unassailable, right? We all have our issues. And quite the opposite is actually true. By being open with your flaws, it goes, all right, I'm a person too, and I can do this work. You can too. So I definitely think you've got that that uh, ability. Um to answer your question, though, uh, I, I I think that that the, the the interesting thing about my my parents is that so my dad, both of my parents are like two of my biggest fans of the podcast, which I appreciate. They listen to every episode, which is very sweet. But my my dad it, it gets it on a, a little bit more of a level because he's very much into to mindfulness and. Um, has gotten into that a lot as he's gotten older. My my mother still has a bit more, a very actually, I will say it this way, a very unique uh, 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 thought on mental health. She literally once said to me, "This this is a direct quote uh, that she thinks that everybody in the world except for her needs to see a therapist." That's that's a direct quote from my mother. Um, so, so so there is definitely a support. Uh, for people to, to uh, from both of them. And my mother did tell me actually that she's only seen a therapist. I think she said twice in her life once, you know, when she was young and then once when I was going through all my shit um, and that therapist, the, the goal of her work with this therapist was to come to terms with the fact that I was probably going to die. So that's some heavy shit, right? I mean that, that, and I, and I guess I give her props for, for doing that. It would have been a lot easier to just not deal yeah. with it as you were saying earlier. So um, it is interesting, though, because they, they both very much support the, the work I'm doing. I think it challenges a lot of things that 
uh, that are that t- was too popular amongst the older generation, which is just you you put your work th- your head down, you work hard, and and you save all that stuff for you know forget that. Uh, we're, there's a reason that everybody in the world has anxiety now, right? It's because for the, the last four decades we've been holding all this shit in. It's time to get it out. Yeah, and I think and even to say you know it, it, we do want to get it out, we do want to be open books, but at the same time you're also a very vocal person and you enjoy speaking about these things. So I think that if you're not on the, uh, if you're at a different stage and a different journey of your healing and recovery, even just trying to fucking figure out, I think that if you're listening to this right now, then you're clearly at least arguably you understand that there is always self-improvement. And like, we are not invincible and we are human and we fuck up and we have emotions. But I think that we should also understand that like sometimes you, you just need at least one person that you feel comfy with. Yes, it doesn't exactly. Have, you don't have to go promote and like create a podcast and a website and all these things. Like you don't have to become something in order to touch someone. Um, and I, I completely think that it's so important to have platforms like choose your struggle or even hotter than health or whatever resource speaks to you, but you don't have to accomplish anything in order to feel healed and heard and seen. That is such, I'm, I want to, I'm so glad you said that because that's something that I've actually had someone say to me before. It was like, you make it sound so easy to, Oh, just talk about it. Right. Which is, Okay, not everybody is as open with this shit as you and I. And I, by the way, uh, for for your listeners, um, I am not as open about talking about my bowel movements as you are. So we all have different <laughs> levels of of our vulnerability, right? So props to you on that one. But I will say, superpower, just like this is your superpower. You are. Yes, you you have the ability to just talk about it in a way that I do not. So props to you on that one. I will say though that that point is so so fucking important. I was silent about this, my, my stuff, as I said, for five years after I got in recovery because I still believed the, 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 the stigma. And, and it took one of the few people in my life knowing my story who happened to run a storytelling event hounding me. Not hounding. I mean, he was nice about it. But being like, I support you doing this. I think you should tell your story four times before I said yes. And now I do this for a living, right? So you're right. It doesn't take having a platform. It just takes that one person to be like, I'm here to listen. And I believe that you can do this. And I make this offer whenever I speak, whenever I'm interviewed. Uh, we have a saying, those of us who work in this in this business, we'd rather spend two hours talking to you today than two hours at your funeral tomorrow. And I say that in the sense of if you don't think you have that opportunity, you're listening to two people right now who are there for it right you're listening to two people right now who will stop what they're doing and say great let's have a chat here's my phone number i do this all the time i make this joke a lot i've literally had someone reach out over tiktok and i don't recommend it because i forget that i have a tiktok all the time so don't reach out over tiktok however i i'll give you these code words i like to do this because i think it's important if you reach out to me and say, I heard you on the Hotter Than Health podcast, right? And I have a question or um, I was just wondering about something. I know that that's your code word for I need to chat and I'm not going to push you. I'm going to say, great, here's my phone number or here's a Zoom link. Let's chat. And then we're going to do this in private in a way that, that is easy for you. You don't have to say, I'm worried about something. I'm struggling with something. I know those are hard things to say. All you have to do is I heard you on the podcast. 
podcast and I have a question or I was wondering about something and I'll get it and we'll, we'll make some time. I completely agree with that. And likewise, if you're struggling with, you know, constipation, irregularity, nutrition, like <laughs> enjoy your water, Jay. Um, I, I'm telling you these, but I'm telling you, I will not back down on this. Six times out of 10, the reason why people are unable to detoxify and feel energetic and naturally light and their highest self is because they are unable to tap into the fact that they have anxiety or depression or they are they cannot see so i'm i i'm able to like kind of be a mirror for this and i just updated my website and i was like i have to put on here that i feel like i have an intuition to see people's pain points as soon as they talk to me but it makes it's because I get it. I totally get it. And I'm not saying that constipation is the same thing as overdosing, but I'm saying that in my in, in my realm, people are struggling and it it what it means is you're holding on to something. Constipation is you're holding on to something. You're unable to communicate or eliminate in any way. And a lot of the times it comes from something deeper. So, um I think that that's just where I have really understood so i i want to say as someone who uh has lived through an overdose survived four months of step down detox and unfortunately has as with most people been constipated at one point um they're not equal but they're also not that dissimilar so uh (laughs) i I do not recommend any of them but neither none of them are great but i think it's good to know that you have people who can either talk shit with you or talk you know, just listen. So I'm, I'm just so happy that we've had the chance to talk about this and I have no idea how I'm going to edit this up. And how I'm, gonna... <laughs> I'm probably just going to let this play. I'm, I'm going to probably cut off the very beginning and just say an honest conversation with, with uh, Eliza Gelman of Hider Than Health. That's it. I'm going to do no editing. Just put it out. Maybe I'll do the same exact thing and maybe I'll even keep in tip taps behind me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, if you don't mind plugging yourself, give your resources, as we say, pimp yourself out, Mr. J, let us know where (laughs) we can find you. Yep. So uh, you can find me at my website, jayshiffman.com, J-A-Y-S-H-I-F-M-A-N.com. I'm on all social media at either Choose Your Struggle or Jay Schiffman. And you can find the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts at Choose Your Struggle. All right, your turn. <laughs> uh, my name is Eliza Gelman. You can find the podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. It would mean the fucking world. And I say the F word because it's so important. Um, if you went and subscribed to the podcast and downloaded some episodes, if, if you enjoy it, leave a review. That's amazing. Subscription is absolutely incredible and it's free. So anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can find me on Instagram at Eliza G underscore wellness or hotter than health podcast. I'm on TikTok, even though I hate it. I'm on (laughs) YouTube. If you want to pull it up on YouTube, it's everywhere you listen, anywhere you can find and anything you want to do. You can find. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna pull up your TikTok right now. Don't do it. Hey, I do have one that kind of went. It got hot for a minute. It was like ninety thousand or something, and I was like, "Wow, wow. I know it's, it has not happened since." And I have a lot of. <laughs> you know what? I will say, I have never experienced such trolls as I have on TikTok. People got mean. I, I, <laughs> I will say that at this point. Uh, I, maybe you, you'll be the first. I don't know that I follow a single woman on TikTok that doesn't 
use it to advertise their OnlyFans. So uh, I think I think you'll be the first one that isn't just an OnlyFans advertisement. Would you please go hit follow and you can share with all your friends. But hey, at the same time, um, the TikTok is great for little tiny tips on hydration, how to stay regular, how to integrate nutrition and like small tips. I think it's really fantastic. So I do have a couple videos up there that I think are good. Um, also the website, we just rebranded and it looks great. Eliza G., um, wellness.com and you can book a nutrition consultation. They are complimentary because we can just figure out if it's good to work together, but this is a long plug of mine, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm going to put everything in the show notes for everyone. I'm going to put in some information on the online, uh, therapy platforms, as well as the non-therapy, the peer collective and Jay's information. So if you guys want to follow him, he's just a heap of knowledge and, really a fantastic speaker and eloquent. I, I dig your story now. Thank you. Well, thank you for, for taking this time. My listeners definitely go check out Eliza. Great. Thanks.